If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Old Testament book of Joel, one of the minor prophets. You can find Joel just after Hosea and just before Amos. Joel chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 28 through 32. These verses in all their fullness describe events associated with Christ's return to remove evil and to, re- and to rule in righteousness when all believers will have the privileges and the abilities of prophets. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. But the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 inaugurated Christ's rule in an early form. For at that time, God gave his spirit to all believers as a down payment of more to come. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Begin reading at Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 28. This is the word of the Lord. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Amen. Please turn with me to Acts, Acts of the Apostles. Chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 through 13. Pentecost means 50th and refers to the Feast of Weeks, Exodus 34, 22, 23, or Harvest, Leviticus 23, 16, which was celebrated 50 days after Passover in May and June. Leviticus 23:15 through 22. In verse 2, Luke's vision or symbol describes God's action, action of sending the Holy Spirit. Wind is usually used in Scripture as a picture of the Spirit, Ezekiel 37, 6. The second chapter of Acts marks a turning point in the history of God's kingdom. A new phase of his redemptive plan unfolds as the church is born. In chapter 1 of Acts, the disciples were to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, he comes. In chapter 1, the disciples were equipped. In chapter 2, they are empowered. In chapter 1, they were held back. In chapter 2, they are sent forth. 
In chapter 1, the Savior ascended. In chapter 2, the Spirit descends. The promises of the Lord Jesus Christ given in chapter 1 of Acts, verses 5 and 8, come to fulfillment as the believers gathered in the upper room received the wonderful promise of the Father. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one of was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, say, astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling of our own telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said they were they are filled with new wine. Amen. Turn in your Bibles momentarily to 1 Corinthians 1. In the previous hour, Brother Scott taught a lesson on the wisdom of God. And at least at one point, he kind of defined down the result of what wisdom reveals. I think somebody else said it was, it's worse than I thought. It's certainly, it's worse for me. I'm worse than I thought. Well, there's another way. We actually may be better than we think. And that's why I asked you to turn to 1 Corinthians 1. Because this is, this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And look at the way he addresses them. Paul. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church that's in Corinth. To those that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. To those that are called to be saints together. With all those who in every other place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both their Lord and ours. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched 
in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom, through whom, you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What a beautiful description of the people of God. A people of God gathered together by the grace of God, blessed, enriched by his Spirit, in every way, in order that they may magnify his name in all directions as they faithfully await the coming of the Son of God to gather them to himself. Now, we have spent off and on, not consecutively, almost two and a half years in the Corinthian epistles. It's kind of scary if you think about it. Is that the way you perceive the Corinthians, (laughs) having spent this much time with them? And yet, Paul wrote those things under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Those, those words are truth. But is that the way we think about the Corinthians now after all this time we've been, been reading about them and Paul's been wrestling with them and it just seems like it get, there's always another issue and there's always another problem. And even when it looks like things have been worked out, something sideways is just a matter of time before, before it just manifests itself in a different direction. You know, I mentioned a week or so ago that I read somewhere the, the reality is the church is to be a family, but not the ideal one that nobody has, the real one that everybody has, the, the one that there's there's problems, there's personalities, there, there's things going on that you're unhappy with, and there are people you just can't get along with, and yet they're family. There are no perfect churches. But all churches, because believers in those churches are indwelt with the Spirit of God, are capable of growing and maturing in the faith and of encouraging one another to experience the grace of God in their own lives. Now I've got a book in my library entitled 20 Controversies That Almost Killed a Church. The subtitle is it's Paul's counsel to the Corinthians and, of course, to the church today. It's been really helpful, (laughs) Uh, particularly in clarifying the kind of challenges Paul faced because he was dealing with a cosmopolitan church and it was planted in the midst of a pagan people and they were at least justly in their own minds proud of their economic and cultural achievements. Uh, They were constantly being encouraged by the culture around them to entertain ideas and philosophies and new and exciting religions, primarily from the East, but things that were, you know, brought in from outsiders that were even better than what you have. And then every now and then somebody would come through and he discovered ancient wisdom that was even better. And so they were kind of tossed to and fro and because they were 
they considered themselves at least to be intellectual elites. Uh, they loved that sort of thing. Well, the most amazing thing about that book on the 20 controversies that almost killed the church is it's only 1 Corinthians. <laughs> There's 20 controversies that almost killed the church in 1 Corinthians. And having spent a significant amount of time now in 2 Corinthians, as you've no doubt noticed, it's not a whole lot better. It seems to be some areas are actually getting worse. Now, we're about one sermon away from being finished with the Corinthian epistles. But Paul's not through with them. In fact, he's going to open today's passage in 2 Corinthians 12 by speaking of the fact he's been a fool. He loves the Corinthian church. He doesn't mind sounding like a fool to them. He doesn't mind, in a sense at least from their view, making a fool of himself for them. Because it is his heart's desire that they grow to maturity. He wants to do anything he can to hinder or halt the spiritual drift into apostasy that false teachers that they have allowed into their midst and they are listening to are encouraging them to embrace. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you love your church. You gave your son to draw it to himself that it may be his body and he be its head. You lead your church step by step. You work through leaders in your church, but you also work in the pews, in the chairs, our as our missionary Kuriachin just experienced on the floor as everyone in the congregation in Nepal is sitting on the floor. Lord, you work, you work in mysterious ways your wonders to perform, but it is all for your glory and for the good of your people. So as we look at this passage, we look at the state of this church and the challenges that Paul is facing and addressing and the resistance that... He seems to be experiencing. Help us, Lord, to examine our own lives and our our own weaknesses and our own susceptibilities. Let us renew our sense of dependence upon you and you alone. Your spirit to strengthen and enable and guide us into greater truth and greater, greater devotion to you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 11, I've been a fool, just like I said. Now, he's saying that because he's already told them, you know, you guys bear with fools gladly. That was back in chapter 11, verse 19. Because you think you're so wise yourselves. He says in chapter 12, verse 6, if I wanted to boast, I really wouldn't be a fool. Because everything I'd be boasting about, I'd be speaking the truth. But I have been a fool in a sense, and you forced me to it. In reality, he says, continuing in verse 11, I ought to have been commended by you. Because I'm not at all inferior to these super apostles. Now that's a term he's using for the people that are 
clearly influencing them in the wrong direction and leading them in the wrong direction and prejudicing them against the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Uh, these are individuals who claim their learning and the authority with which they are there, perhaps letters from abroad, from important institutions, maybe even like councils and Sanhedrins and such things that would give them more credibility than obviously they deserved. He says, I'm not at all inferior to these super apostles. I'm more than their equal, even though I am nothing. And that's pretty consistent with Paul. He always would say, when you get right down to it, I'm nothing. He'd say, and, and I, think, I think any true gospel minister would have to say, I am what I am by the grace of God. There's nothing special other than that. Without the grace of God, there's nothing good. So he goes on to, to make this point. Though you might, maybe in your eyes, I'm seen as weak or frail or there being a city church, maybe I'm just too country, which is a term that, you know, I'm sure there's some related term that would fit there. But the signs of a true apostle were performed among you and they were done with utmost patience. They were done with signs and they were wonders and they were mighty works. Now what he's saying there in verse 12 is no matter what you think of me personally and my personality, the mark of apostolic power have been unmistakable and they are undeniable in my ministry. Now this is the Apostle Paul. He's recalling to their minds things that they have personally seen. That they have personally experienced. But when he says these things were performed among you. The tense there is, a, is almost in a sense a divine passive. This isn't something I did. This is something God did through me. But which you experienced. He's saying, you know, I'm only God's channel for this. But through me, he put his power on display. Now, of course, if you're thinking this through, verse 12 raises an important question. If the signs of a true apostle involve signs and wonders and mighty deeds that supposedly he did among these Corinthians, what were they? I mean, we didn't read about any of those in Corinthians. We spent a significant amount of time going through the book of Acts. And during the couple of chapters when he was in Corinth, there doesn't appear to be any of that. So what exactly? I mean, if he says it happened, it did happen. But he's calling it to their mind. What are the signs? What are the wonders? What are the mighty works that they witnessed? And the answer is, we don't know. But the other answer is, they know. And when Paul writes that, when that's read to them, they know what he's talking about. Now we do know some things about these signs of a true apostle. We know, for instance, at the conclusion of, John, of Mark's gospel, the very last phrases of Mark's gospel. 
Jesus' final words to his disciples were, it's one of those great commission passages, go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation, and whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, whoever doesn't believe will be condemned, and these signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And then the Lord Jesus, after he'd spoken this, was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. Praise the Lord. And they went out and they preached everywhere. And as they went out and preached everywhere, the Gospel of Mark concludes with this phrase. While they were doing that, the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So those signs and wonders and mighty works were being done purposefully in that particular age. Remember, there isn't a New Testament. That's being written on the day of Pentecost. The Walt read to us about the why the crowd gathered. They gathered primarily because this group of Galileans and they understood these Galileans are speaking the Hebrew of the day, but they're speaking it in a Galilean accent. Like we could tell the difference, right? But they could tell the difference. Uh, but if you look at the passage Walt read to us, there's 15 different nationalities listed there. 15 different languages listed there. And every single one is hearing these Galileans who are speaking a Galilean Hebrew in not only their own language, they're hearing the language from home in their own dialect. Now that was pretty stunning. Probably not quite as stunning as the individual said, hey, they're just drunk. Oh God, how does that answer that question? And that was the last phrase that Brother Walt read. Well, Peter stands up on that day and he explains what's going on. He says, what you're looking at is what Joel 2, 28-32 said was going to happen. And you Jews all know that. You've been longing for the Messiah that's going to come and, and show these things. Then you'd know who's there. Well, that's what's happening here. And then he says, here's the message that accompanies those signs and wonders. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Well, they heard those words. Do you suppose those words were authenticated by, by the way they came to them? See, that's, there's some signs and wonders going on they couldn't deny. And now they've heard diluted truth. I mean, concentrated truth, not diluted truth. Okay. When Peter and John in Acts 4 are hauled before the council, threatened, and then released. They go to a group of believers who are already being described. Acts 4.29 as persecuted believers in Jerusalem. And those persecuted believers began to pray. And the prayer they offered up was, 
Lord, look upon the threats that we're receiving and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Don't let this shut us down. Give us the strength to proclaim your word with all boldness while you, Lord, stretch out your hand to heal and with signs and wonders being performed through the name of your servant, Jesus. They, they, they understood what that was all about. And chapter 5, verse 12, many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Over in chapter 14, verse 3, Paul and Barnabas remained a long time in Iconium. This is Paul and Barnabas. This isn't one of those 12 or the 11. They're speaking boldly for the Lord. And the Lord is bearing witness to the word of his grace by granting to them signs and wonders to be done by their hands. By whose hands? By Saul of Tarsus and Barnabas. By Paul and Barnabas, basically. In Acts 15, 20, when they get back to the Jerusalem council, Paul and Barnabas are there with a whole lot of other people and all the assembly of the Jerusalem council falls silent. And they listen as Barnabas and Paul relate the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. You know, it certainly sounds like there's an awful lot of signs and wonders going on here, but that's what was promised. Why wouldn't there be? Much later in Paul's ministry, in chapter 20, verse 9, he's preaching into the night. It's a long message. He's got a lot to say. And it may, it may have been fascinating to listen to. But there's a young man named Eutychus who's sitting in the windowsill and he might have been fascinated but he's also tired and eventually he goes to sleep and he falls out the window and it's a floor or two down and when they get down to him, he's dead. Eutychus is dead. Paul went down and bent over him, took him in his arms and said, don't be alarmed, his life's in him. Not dead anymore. Now, you think that authenticated what Paul had been saying? Paul's on his way to Roman imprisonment, having spent two years in imprisonment already in Caesarea. He's on a ship. Terrible things happen. He warned them it was going to happen. They lose the ship. They lose basically everything. They're all washed up on the shore of Malta. Paul's out there picking up firewood. Think about this. The Apostle Paul's out picking up firewood, so other prisoners that been washed ashore can be safe and dry. He's gathering a bundle of sticks and putting them on the fire when out of the sticks comes a viper because of the heat from the fire and bites him on his hand. Acts 28.3 The native people, those Maltans, they see that creature just hanging from his hand with venom, no doubt, pulsating from the creature into the hand. And they say, reasonably, this man's obviously a terrible murderer. Because even if he, even though he escaped from the sea, the rule of justice is he has to pay the penalty. And if the sea didn't get him, the gods sent the viper. And of course, Paul just shakes the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. Suppose anybody 
was interested in what he had to say after that. I mean, that's the way it works in this particular age. Now, we all know there's yahoos running around our world today that are pretending to do this sort of thing. Once the New Testament was finished, those signs and wonders weren't needed anymore. The signs and wonders that people have as evidence that God's word is true today is living saints. People whose lives have been changed by the power of God, by the spirit of God. Now, people that were and now they aren't. The, the such were some of you that no longer are that way. That's the signs and wonders now. And we have a closed canon that teaches us everything we need for life and godliness. I went over all that to demonstrate that signs and wonders were, they were purposeful, but they were also common among the apostles. And they were given to bear witness to the apostles' message. In fact, the only thing missing from that list is the idea of if you drink a deadly poison, you won't die. That's pretty topical today, you know, since uh, Alexis Navalny, uh, who was once poisoned before uh, by probably Putin, went back to Russia thinking he could still make a difference and was immediately arrested and thrown in prison. And well, a couple of days ago, probably yesterday or the day before, he was poisoned again. I don't think there's much doubt at all about that. And this time he's really dead because they couldn't get him out of there. They couldn't get him to Germany where he could have been treated. He was a political prisoner. You know, there was a significant period of time when Paul was in Rome, and he's little more than a political prisoner. In fact, the only reason he's been left in jail when he was at Caesarea Philippi was to please the Jews and maybe get a bribe. Well, what do regimes do when political prisoners become inconvenient? They see to it something happens to them. And oftentimes, in the ancient world, the something that happened to them is they got poisoned. You know, they had some bad figs or something. And the next thing you know, they're dead. I wouldn't be surprised at all if they tried that any number of times on the Apostle Paul. But of course, you can't poison the Apostle Paul. Because he, one of the signs of the Apostles is, if you happen to drink a deadly poison, it doesn't kill you. I don't have any evidence that happened, it just... You know, people are the same. History may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. When Paul calls those things to their attention, he's pointing out that not only are you paying a lot less attention to what I taught you, you seem to have forgotten a lot of the things that I did among you. So then he asked the question in verse 13. So in, in how, in what way were you less favored than the rest of the churches? How, how did I treat you any different than the other churches except for this one thing? Uh, I didn't burden you with supporting me. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know why that's such a bad thing. He says, forgive me this wrong. But no, I didn't insist that you actually support me. If I had to be a tent maker, I'd be a tent maker. Or those poor Macedonians, again and again and again, dirt poor Macedonians, sent relief to me from Philippi, from Thessalonica. 
So that didn't burn you at all. Forgive me for that. I guess I should have taken a wage from you. Now, that, if that comes across as mocking, I don't really think that's what he meant. Because he very quickly says in verse 14, look, I'm not mad for the third time. I really am ready to come to you. You know, and, and if I come to you, I will not be a burden. Despite all the issues, I still care for you. No. I, 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 I'm not going to be a burden. I know the super apostles, they'll take up an offering every time two of you gather. But that's not what I'm about. I'm not going to be a burden. I'm not seeking anything of yours. What I'm seeking is you. What, what, what I'm after is you for the Lord. And then he throws out this, in a sense, a proverb. Children aren't obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. It's a play on the fact he's already told them in 1 Corinthians 4.15, I became your father in Christ through the gospel. It says, you Corinthians, you believers, you're my spiritual children in a sense. I have an obligation to look out for you at whatever cost to myself. It really is a, it is a wonderful, wonderful sentiment. So verse 15, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Another way of saying was that, look, I don't want your money. I want you. Now, these are the people that he addressed in 1 Corinthians 1 in those, that wonderful language. They're the same people. He's clearly Fearful about their condition. I want you. He says, if I, if I love you more, is that what's causing you to love me less? But he says, and I'm going to read a little bit into verse 16, but I think it fits. Granted, granting that I myself didn't burden you, you say I was crafty? That somehow I got the better of you by deceit? Now I think what he's doing here, he's picking up upon the sort of things they've been told. The sort of insinuations that have been made against his character. Now, that somehow it's all been, been, all been a, a shell game. That though, yes, he hasn't accepted support because he's after a bigger personal reward. I suspect, and I think there's some evidence, that these super apostles that are leading these people astray are taking Paul's lack of support and saying he's doing that so you won't be suspicious and since he's such an obviously good and honest man, you'll just let him carry off that huge collection that's being made from all the churches. Because remember, that's in the background of all this. Incidentally, I got that from John MacArthur. So there's almost no original thought with me, but you, you've known me long enough to realize that. Uh, and if that was their implied questions about Paul, it seems to have found some fertile ground upon which to sprout. And that's because lost men 
And men that are struggling with their faith have suspicious minds. They distrust, because they know they can't be trusted, they distrust others. True believers want to believe. I mean, they, they, they want to believe the best of others. So he says in verse 17, did I take advantage of you? Did I, the word here, did I exploit you? Hmm. Uh, did I exploit you through any of those whom I sent to you? And then he reminds me, yes, I urge Titus to go. I sent the other brother, whomever that is. And we discussed that from time to time. We'll get back to it in the pastoral epistles. Did, did Titus take advantage of you? I suspect Titus passed through, did everything he could to help him like he was supposed to, brought back wonderful word about the, the good things that were going on there, was received well. I mean, we've covered that ground. Did we not act, did, didn't he act in the same spirit I did? Didn't he do the same sort of, take the same steps that I did? To exploit someone is to somehow get them to give what they have to you. Did Christ exploit you when he came and gave himself for you? Obviously not. Did Paul exploit these individuals when he came and gave himself at, at no cost to them, at great burden to him, at great emotional cost to him? Of course not. Christ gave himself freely. And Christ's ministers are called to do the same. That takes an interesting turn in verse 19. Because if they've been far along, they're probably feeling right now, there's, there's got to be some pangs of, some discomfort here, let's just say. And then he says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? Do you think this is just, I'm just trying to defend myself? I don't have to defend myself. It's in the sight of God that I've been speaking in Christ. You know, I've got an advocate with the Father. It's the Son of God. It's my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I don't need to defend myself to you. I've got a greater advocate with a greater judge. And so do you, brethren. And it's all, everything I'm doing here is for your upbuilding, for building you up in the faith. And he calls them beloved. Now the Corinthian church seemed to be, and periodically, as I've, as I've referred to them any number of times in this series, probably the most American of churches, contemporary American of churches. All right. They really like the show. And we may think it's a modern idea, but it isn't a modern idea. It's an old idea. And they, they like, they like big and showy. And if, if you've been online in some of the weird places that I go, and you've seen some of the videos of some of the church services that went on last Sunday, which was Super Bowl Sunday, which involved some remarkable skits on stage behind pulpits, of people, you know, kicking Bibles for field goals. 
and and worse things in the spirit of encouraging people to be there to worship, I guess. I mean, absolutely appalling things. That would fit in Corinth very, very well. These people would like every week an awe-inspiring message from a gloriously eloquent leader. And they'd want that so the fame of their church, which they think they so richly desire, would spread far and wide, not just in Achaia, but across Greece and hopefully the entire Roman Empire. So everybody'd know about their church. What was the church at Antioch known for? You know, the first description of the church at Antioch, when Barnabas got there, he saw the grace of God. And every time we pass through that, I've asked, what did he see? <laughs> How do you see the grace of God? Well, you obviously have to spend a little time there, but it didn't take him long before he, he saw the grace of God. And then he immediately went and found Saul of Tarsus and brought him back, and they spent about a year and a half, them and some others, preaching and teaching the Word of God, teaching primarily the Word of God to these basically new believers there in Antioch. What was the church of Antioch known for? It was known for Bible teaching. It was known for the fact that they were the first church that sent out, officially commissioned out missionaries as the Spirit of God moved upon them to do. And it was known as a place where the grace of God was visible. What was the church Corinth known for? Corinthianism, for lack of a better term. I'm not sure that is a word, but it's a word you understand. It is, it, 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 is, it is a word you understand. That's what the church at Corinth was known for. That's not what Paul's about. That's not what we should be about. Paul wants to produce, and what he's pursuing, at whatever cost himself, is mature, selfless believers. Individuals who are sacrificially giving of themselves for the furtherance of the gospel. Who are sincerely interested in the extension of our Lord's kingdom. And a ministry that's not aimed at that will end up producing what the flesh always produces. And that's what Paul's great fear is for the church at Corinth. The primary responsibility of the pastor, of the leadership of the church, is laid out very clearly in Ephesians 4, 11 and following. Paul gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. How long are we going to do this? Only until everyone attains to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Another way to say that, until everyone has, has attained mature manhood to the measure and the stature of the fullness of God. That's the burden upon Paul. That's the burden upon the leadership of the church. Paul's fear in verse 20 
I fear that perhaps when I come, I'm not going to find that among you. I may find you not as I wish. And if that's so, you probably, you're not going to find me as you wish either. When I get there, what I'm afraid I'm going to find, and it's going to be very disturbing, there'll be quarreling, there'll be jealousy, there'll be anger, there'll be hostility, there'll be slander, there'll be gossip, there'll be conceit, and there'll be disorder. Now he listed eight vices there. But all eight vices have one thing in common. They're interpersonal, and they all start with the tongue. So that is, that's, there, there's the great fear. I fear that when I come again, verse 21, God may humble me before you. When I get there, I may have to go through another one of those times in which I'm just crushed in spirit. I'm coming anyway. I'm going to do whatever I possibly can. But if that's the will of God, that I just be crushed in spirit and the whole thing has to start over again. And he's still talking to the same people that he wrote those things about in 1 Corinthians 1. I may have to mourn over many of you who who sinned early, earlier. And though you made professions, have not repented, not actually repented of the impurity, of the sexual immorality, of the sensuality that you once practiced. Remember, Paul's the one that said he went over a whole long list of things in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following, don't you know the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Past tense, you were that. You're not now. But now he's saying, my fear is that when we get to the core issue here, the people that I was had so much confidence in, some of you, some of you, it isn't real. And what do you suppose Paul's going to do? He's going to do whatever's necessary. He's going to come alongside. He's going to preach and teach the word of God just as clearly as he possibly can. With a broken heart, probably. And trust God. If God's chosen these people, if they've fallen away, if they're his people, God's going to make it tough on them, but he will deliver his people. And Paul, at whatever cost to himself, is willing to be used to that end. I really struggled with with how to write this up because... A change of a behavior without a change of heart is a false profession. I mean, you, you guys know I've been baptized three or four times. And every time I was sincere. Uh, 
Uh, sometimes I was young. Uh, not all the times I was that young. But I was always sincere. I really, really meant it. With my mind, with my will, with everything I could do. But when my heart changed, everything started changing. I couldn't quite explain what had happened to me. But I couldn't deny it had. And all of a sudden, all the furniture of my life was being reorganized. It was going other places. Priorities were changing. Paul's burden for these brethren in Corinth, like any pastor would be for his people. This is a very human portion of Scripture. We're one sermon away from the end of this epistle. I trust that will be next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thou art more gracious to us than we can imagine, more patient than we could possibly understand. Clearly, you are God and we are not. Lord, thank you for the Apostle Paul and the gifting that you granted to him. Thank you for this preserved truth that we may recognize ourselves on the pages of Scripture and see ourselves as we are from time to time. Lord, use this message for the building up of your people, for the calling of your people, for the strengthening of the faith of your people, for the realigning of the lives of your people. Use it for your glory. And we know if it's for your glory, it will be for our good. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.